Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic and you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Well, Father Dan, welcome back to your podcast uh, after the homily this week. Great to be here, Christopher. We're setting here just into Advent in this first week of December. And as is often the case, there's a lot of a lot of Catholic news about listeners uh, will will probably remember that I believe it was last week that Bishop Kevin Rhodes uh, published a letter about our very own St. Mary's College in South Bend and having to do with St. Mary's making a decision to accept men to a women's college who identify as women, um, not a topic without controversy. And so there have been many people talking about that. At the very same time, this week, there's been a great deal of uh, news coverage of uh, protest um, uh, opposing Israel on some of the more famous college campuses, Harvard, MIT, I believe Cornell and others. And subsequently, the presidents of those colleges have been uh, testifying before congressional hearings. And um, I'm certainly no expert on the topic it would appear as though that they were reluctant to condemn what most would identify as hate speech in today's terminology against Israel. So with those two things going on and it being mid-year, I know a lot of families are discerning right now where their children will go to college in the fall and students are making decisions. They're making acceptance letters and such. So I wonder if we could start by just sort of exploring maybe those specific issues, but maybe even the broader issue of how do we as parents and grandparents and students even begin to make these kind of decisions, given all that's happening in our complex world? Chris, that's a great setup because it's always one or two of the controversies of the day that really force us to go deeper in a sense, into calmer depths than the the froth and foam <laughs> that is on the surface uh, with the waves, and and to look at some of the deeper the deeper currents that that can help understand and and also transform the the conversation around these issues. And I I propose this quotation came to mind as as you were asking the question. I propose an extended quotation from a, a Catholic journalist who was very active in the early 20th century, known perhaps to some of our listeners, G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. He was really 
the, the Catholic layman in the world, in the thick of every controversy, all of the, the political dramas, uh, you name it. He was at the center of it, but he, he spoke prophetically to the questions of the age from the depths of, of his faith in Christ, from the, the depths of, of, of being a, a son of the church. And so this, this passage is from his book, Heretics. He writes, suppose that a great commotion arises in the street about something. Let us say a lamppost, which many influential persons desire to pull down. A gray-clad monk, who is the spirit of the Middle Ages, is approached upon the matter and begins to say in the arid manner of the schoolman, let us first of all consider, my brethren, the value of light, if light be in itself good. At this point, he's somewhat excusably knocked down. All the people make a rush for the lamppost. The lamppost is down in 10 minutes, and they go about congratulating each other on their unmedieval practicality. But as things go on, they do not work out so easily. Some people have pulled the lamppost down because they wanted the electric light. Some because they wanted old iron. Some because they wanted darkness, because their deeds were evil. Some thought it not enough of a lamppost, some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash municipal machinery. Some because they wanted to smash something. And there is war in the night, no man knowing whom he strikes. So gradually and inevitably, today, tomorrow, or the next day, there comes back the conviction that the monk was right after all and that all depends on what is the philosophy of light. Only what we might have discussed under the gas lamp, we must now discuss in the dark. End of quotation. <laughs> Chesterton is highlighting certain fundamental truths that I propose can guide our conversation. The first is whenever there's controversy, it, it's vital to take a step back and make a deeper assessment of what are the fundamental principles at work here. So for example, in the case of a college making a decision to admit self-identified transgender uh, students, which means admitting males who present themselves as females to a college that is a women's college, as a women's college. Right. right? So the, there are a lot of principles in, in that decision. And one of them would be a kind of expressive individualism that our culture really privileges as uh, the meaning of personhood. So a, a person is fundamentally somebody, an individual endowed with this freedom to express him, her, uh, zer, self. But what if that notion of, uh, of personhood is, is inadequate? In other words, what if our embodiment as human persons is not something cosmetic, that can be changed, uh, something secondary to who we really are. But what if our embodiment is, is actually all the way down? And Amy Wellborn 
Catholic journalist and essayist had a very interesting observation that she shared with the leadership of St. Mary's College. She, she pointed out that by making a decision to admit biological males who present themselves as females, what the college is saying uh, in principle is that embodied female experience is tangential to what it is to be a woman. And womanhood, in this view, comes down to being both a, a performance and a desire. So in other words, a, a performance, namely a, a cultural construct, and depending on you know, how you move the stage pieces, even you know, surgically, hormonally, it, it's a performance all the way down. And it's also reducible to a, a strongly felt, persistently felt desire. And that, that misunderstanding of what it is to be a human being, that, that taking of the philosophy of expressive individualism to the nth degree is, is actually profoundly destabilizing. And, and it's not something neutral because we, we live in a culture now where more and more young women with more and more insecurities are, are being taught in innumerable ways that if they don't like who they are, at any given time as they go through adolescence, well, they can be something else. And, and it's always been exceedingly challenging to be a woman in, in a world that is, is so male dominated in so many ways. The, the desire to marginalize one's female embodiment, that temptation has never been greater. And, and in a college dedicated to the education of women is, is doing a disservice to the, the next generation of, of women that it serves if it's playing into the, the philosophy of so-called gender as ultimately just a performance and, and strongly held desires. Yeah, it's certainly been said by many that, you know, what, what does it say, the silence of the so-called pro-women's groups, they seem to be silent on this topic. And I would have expected just rationally that you would see pro-women's group very, very, you know, vociferously in opposition to this idea. How dare you try to redefine what a woman is? We are women. We'll tell you what a woman is sort of thing. But it's really been quiet about on that side. Yes, because I think the, uh, the anthropology here. When it meets the ideology, it, it produces some, some serious confusions. And so people whose view of the world is built on this kind of expressive individualism and then wedded to a kind of Marxist idea that there is no real objective truth. It's just the negotiation of power relationships for a kind of uh, egalitarian, everyone is is equal in the sense of um, their expressive individualism being um, as interchangeable as we wish it to be. 
that that whole project is 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 riddled with all sorts of anti-social qualities to it because when you have a room full of people who are persuaded that the the highest good, the most fundamental principle of what it is to be human is to be an expressive individual, you know, it's like billiard balls bouncing off each other on the table and and that the possibility for real uh, connection is is threatened. Now, this gets us to an even deeper question of, well, what is a university? And, and what is the collegial nature that forms uh, a college? And here, I, I think it, it really is quite important that we go back to the origin of, of the university from the heart of the church. So in the Middle Ages, when the cathedral schools begin to expand the investigation of the, the various forms and branches of, of human knowing, and, and society begins to recognize uh, that in this rational world created by the Logos, by God, his meaning incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, the word become flesh. Once, once you create a space for the communion of persons who in a sense are given a greater freedom from the political agitations of the day, a greater freedom, a leisure from the workaday uh, servile labors. And, and once you get people training uh, for medicine, for law, in, a, in the liberal arts, uh, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, uh, geometry, uh, astronomy, music, when the, the, the arts of, of what it is uh, to live a robustly human life. Once you get the, the group of these people interacting with each other socially, this whole universe of discourse starts to build real culture. And, you know, to your, the, the second example that you gave of all of the political agitation on various college campuses, administrators need to be very uh, prudent and actually have great courage in making uh, it clear to everybody at the university that we are about the business of the rational investigation of the truth. And, you know, we can have all sorts of 10,000 and more prudential disagreements about what that truth is. But whenever you have uh, large groups of people coming together for rallies of whatever type for whatever purpose the the emotions are being engaged in a way that that becomes very volatile and and all sorts of pressure groups begin to exert themselves on the campus and and it ultimately is is to intimidate you know different groups from you know, from discussing certain topics in, in certain ways. 
obviously this is a very complex question, but whenever university administrators conceive of their role as a, a kind of management of of politics and just negotiation of of constituencies when when the larger search for the truth using the means of of reason uh, and i would also add faith once that space of of discourse is uh, shouted down is canceled is marginalized, uh, bullied, silenced, then, then we have literally the disintegration of the university. It no longer is a university. It, it's chaos. It becomes a, a kind of formless void where, where people don't feel that they can pursue the truth rationally they, they feel like political constituents in a game that's been yeah. rigged. I mean, it's almost a romantic vision, but when I, you know, I think of the great university with very smart people walking around in flowing robes, learning in a Socratic way and heady, heady ideas from all kinds of perspectives. And, you know, we're, we're just pursuing ideas as opposed to a trade school where one might go learn a skill the skill at a university would be the ability to think and to pursue the truth wherever it happens to lead and that you would have this amazing diversity of thought. But increasingly with our two examples, it feels like colleges are pursuing narratives yes. and not the truth. That's, that's just, that's frightening. Yes. When Pope St. John Paul II wrote in the 1990s, his uh, document on the governance and the the ethos of Catholic universities. It's called Ex Corde Ecclesiae, uh, from the heart of the church. That that document is really the the Magna Carta of. It's the charter of what a, a Catholic university should be, and rather than going uh, down that track of exclusively a, a Catholic college right away, I. I should add as a preliminary that college education today, in some respects, has just become a pyramid scheme. It's a, it's a scam where generation after generation of kids is sold a bill of goods that they have to go to college or else they won't get a good job. What happens is they go into indentured servitude and they wind up living decades of their life wedded to the banks who hold the loans rather than to the spouse <laughs> and the children in their formation of a, of a family. So the, the first question one has to ask prudentially, Catholic parents, is my child going to benefit, for example, from learning a trade and all of the intelligence that goes in learning a trade? I find it fascinating that both in Catholic circles, even within our diocese, and also outside of Catholic circles, there's a kind of renaissance of trade schools. There's the recognition that we've produced a whole bunch of people of or who are in debt with their student loans who actually don't have the skills to keep civilization going, but have have degrees in you know the grievance industry. 
whereas, you know, we actually need people to help things run. And so that that's, that's a preliminary. So shout out for the trade schools and the fact that, that kids can be supported in that at an early age, you know, learning the agency that goes with mastering a trade and, and the, uh, the livelihood that, that comes from that in every sense of livelihood, you know, the person fully alive. Now, uh, for those for whom in education, for example, in medicine and law in in the sciences, and I would say even despite their debased current form, the humanities is, is the way to go. Then the question becomes, how do Catholic parents discern where to go and actually what what the purpose of an undergraduate education is. And I'll just cut to the chase and say, looking back on my four years at Our Lady's University, the University of Notre Dame, the most valuable, I would call it a gift that that school gave me was the formation of two or three mentoring relationships with my professors that changed my life. It, they, they literally changed how I conceive being human. I remember uh, both in the classroom and outside the classroom, just visiting professors' homes with other students and just seeing how they interacted with their family, how they integrated their faith in the other aspects of their life. And it was those mentoring relationships that taught me everything from how to use a computer. My, my professor literally sat me down and, and showed me how to use one of the first generation Macs. I mean, just, I still look back on that with awe that, you know, here, here's this guy with multiple degrees and he's showing me the most elementary things. And then actually these same mentors helping me discern what the next steps were for me to take into adulthood. So the first thing I would say to parents who are looking for where to send their children, I would say, find a school that is going to leave the kids with the least amount of debt possible. Even if it's closer to home, even if the kids have to live at home, if you can do it on the cheap, do it on the cheap and then teach the children that they they need to excel where they're at and they need to be proactive in meeting those faculty members who can serve as the best mentors. And that's going to be a process of experimentation because not every undergraduate, most undergraduates don't have their act together. So there's going to be some experimenting with that. And then to put the real money, the real investment in graduate school, if if the child's going to go that route. Sure. Yeah. I mean, thinking about parents that maybe they sent their children to their daughters to St. Mary's last year. I mean, I know personally a few young women who've selected an all women's college and they did it for, they were very intentional about it. They wanted that type of environment, that type of education, looking probably for these mentoring relationships that you're describing, thinking they would find them there. Christopher Stroud, I will tell you, I, I am one of the few people on planet Earth who has 
an organic relationship with St. Mary's College and the Sisters of the Holy Cross as a male. So, for example, I was on the St. Mary's Rome program as a sophomore at Notre Dame. Notre Dame at that point didn't have a non-architecture study abroad program in Rome. So I, I was a male, um, both in fact and by identification and continue to be, who was enrolled in St. Mary's College for that one year. And after college, I taught for a time at an all-girls school run by the Sisters of the Holy Cross in Kensington, Maryland, the Academy of the Holy Cross. And what was so amazing about that environment, I was one of only four men in the entire building. It, I mean, it was hilarious and I found it deeply edifying because I had also taught Catholic school, St. Joseph High School in South Bend for three years before that in a mixed classroom setting, guys and girls. And the difference was palpable. The, the confidence that those young women had at, at the Academy of the Holy Cross, I, I was just in awe of it. And I remember thinking at the time, it's not for everyone but it is for some people. And in fact, a lot of people would benefit from that period of, of single sex education. And I, I know people have taught at all boys schools who've had an analogous experience. So because there are so few of those schools, it's even more necessary to safeguard that now rare option and not to mix it up. I mean, it gets mixed up in women's sports with men identifying as women. So, I mean, but it, now it adds another item on the list of students and parents trying to discern. Correct. That, as little debt as possible, the opportunity for great mentoring relationships. Yes. You, you better understand the philosophy of the institution. Yes. And also I would add in terms of the practice of the Catholic faith and here you're going to need, you're going to need some word of mouth um, recommendations, but whether it's a Catholic school by foundation or a Catholic initiative at, for example, a public school, it, it's important to get to know what that Catholic ecosystem looks like. I'll just give you a few examples. These are just off the top of my head. I don't have a, a list of, of ranks uh, of recommendation, uh, precisely because different people are going to benefit in a different environment. So I'll start with some public schools. I was deeply impressed at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana campus that their Newman Center has a residential component for Catholic students. So it's essentially a Catholic dorm and they have a minor in Catholic studies. So a secular school, public school, is, is essentially sponsoring a little island of Catholicism. And that strikes me as true diversity. You know, God bless America. And it, it creates also a true university setting because, you know, this group of people has a, a freedom to be themselves, but in a way that, 
that contributes to the good of the whole. So it's, it's not, there's nothing sectarian or isolated about it, but it, it produces really scrappy, you know, missionary disciples or, or at Purdue university, just the, the campus ecosystem around St. Thomas parish and all of the Catholic offerings in that environment, I would say that our diocese has produced or has benefited from more priests coming from Purdue than from Notre Dame. And in terms of Catholic schools, for example, the University of Mary in North Dakota, you know, once upon a time, just a sleepy, I think even failing nominally Catholic school and Monsignor James Shea and, and some of his, uh, his friends got together and just started thinking really intentionally about what, what, a, what a great Catholic school would look like, but without any of the big pretensions, without, you know, a great Catholic school is going to have nationally competitive football team, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it just so happens, University of Mary, I think, don't quote me on this, but I, I remember reading something to the effect of, it having one of the finest nursing programs in the nation. Mm. And so they, they specialize in that kind of training for a, a very culturally valuable mm -hmm. uh, profession, but they do it with an intentionally Catholic ecosystem. And so this group of scholars at the University of Mary, they just produced this little book I, I know that you've heard of it, but our, our listeners might not have, uh, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. And it, it's this charter of uh, we're no longer living in a Christian society or a Christian nation. And so it requires of us a missionary discipleship that is is able to understand the signs of the time and to be a leaven rather than a weather vane. In the case of St. Mary's College, and I, I say this with deep, deep, deep sorrow. I also say this because many of my parishioners have children who, who go there or have gone there and are just beside themselves at the, the poor decisions uh, that are being made against the Catholic identity of the institution, but with deep sorrow, I, I really don't think that the different parts of that college ecosystem are, are serving a robustly Catholic faith. I, I think it for decades now, in a way, absolutely. Right? And I think yeah. for decades there, there has been more of an investment in the spirit of the age in, in kind of the waves of secular feminism that, you know, maybe once upon a time, some of that could have passed as really helpful. But in the year of our Lord, 2023, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I find it profoundly unhelpful and deeply destabilizing for an ostensibly women's college to buy into de facto the, the cultural narrative that women's embodiment is marginal to gender 
as fundamentally a performance and strongly felt desires. That almost, makes it arbitrary and and it sets up a generation of young people to think that their happiness is going to pass by way of big pharma who gives them the hormones that they're going to have to be on for the rest of their lives and a medical establishment that treats cosmetic surgeries as as somehow uh, life-defining in terms of the identity of being a, a male and a female. I mean, you as a physician, you know far more in detail than, than I do about what male embodiment entails, what mm. female embodiment entails. And for the discourse to be so literally superficial uh, that secondary sex characteristics are... The defining. Are defining. Yeah. And then the aspiration to have children... You know, for people in this situation, we're dealing with now with rented wombs and, you know, traded sex cells, you know, sperms and egg cells. And it, it really is horrific. And a Catholic college actually has to be a kind of island of sanity. That's where I was going with that. Exactly. I mean, everything you were describing is hor hor horrible. But it seems to rise to an even worse level when it's presented within what you would think would be a safe space, quite literally not in the in the more popular use of the term, but because it's labeled as Catholic. And so students would go there and, and then they must be questioning, is this, is if this isn't Catholic, what about this other thing that right. my sociology professor taught no, me? No, I mean, at a basic level, it's truth in advertising. And, and it also goes to the question of faculty hiring. If a Catholic university isn't proactive about hiring faculty who share the integral Catholic mission of the, of the college or university, it there's a there's a fundamental dishonesty there. And and again, if it all comes down to just power politics and whoever is filling the, the professor's chair and whoever is claiming the authority to define what Catholicism is, then in a certain sense, the, the game is over. The game is up. The fact that Bishop Rhodes wasn't even asked to be involved at any level in this decision, and he's the shepherd that Christ has given us for our diocese in which that school and Notre Dame exists, that shows how how in need of transformation Catholic education today has become. I mean, there are any number of Catholic institutions that that seek to move beyond that culturally compromised uh, proposal from decades past. So you know, Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ave Maria in Florida, Christendom College, Thomas Aquinas College, each of them has strengths, each of them has limitations, but, but all of those four are actually attempting to fulfill what's laid out in Ex Corde Ecclesiae from the heart of the church for that, that great integration of faith and reason of, of a, a community of, of real Catholic scholarship uh, mentoring the next generation to be to be leaven 
for our culture rather than simply to, to reflect it. And, and I think you point out, well, you could, maybe you feel called to go to a Purdue type university. Yes. Maybe you're seeking engineering or something that's, that's, um, you know, stereotypically associated with a secular university. You could still have a great Catholic experience and, and grow in your Catholic identity and faith as a student as well as pursue academic excellence. I don't think you're suggesting it has to be a Catholic college. No, not at Just all. Just the opposite, really. Exactly. Particularly when you think about the cost and the indebtedness and some of those things yes. that go together. Yeah. So there's a book uh, out there called uh, Excellent Sheep. And the, the premise of the book is that many of even the most elite colleges and universities are training a generation of young people to jump through the hoops of everything expected of them, whether it's by the government, whether it's by their parents, whether it's by any institution uh, for which they might work. And the bottom line is we don't need more excellent sheep. And I would propose just to wrap it up here, this go around, I'd propose that what we need is free range Catholics. What do I mean by that? I mean, Catholics who are, are able to feed on what is real, on what is true, on what is good, and on what is beautiful, as it's been given to us by Christ through the centuries and millennia of, of Catholic culture. And the, the alternative to the free-range Catholic is the caged Catholic, the Catholic caged in some type of institutional setting where it it's just whatever the culture is is saying just getting spoon fed to to people who are are just taking it in and becoming cogs in the machine we we have to think in terms of the interior agency the interior embodied agency of this next generation being taken very seriously and and for them to learn the resilience and the, the creativity of, of being authentically mentored beyond the, the cultural politics play, to really be missionary disciples and, and to be about the business of the universal call to holiness. We need saints, thinking saints. Well, let's all agree to pray for the leadership of St. Mary's College, as well as all colleges, but particularly those who call themselves Catholic, that they will see the beauty and the truth of the teachings of Holy Church and find their way back. I hope you enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics that you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line, or you can text message me directly at 260-450-8878 and start your message with after the homily. And a special thanks to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. Without them, this podcast simply could not exist. 
I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.